0: One of the things I wanted to do first was to be sure and let you know it's kind of like a disclaimer except I was going to call it a disclaimer but uh, uh, just before I got up here I thought well I wonder exactly what disclaimer means and I didn't like the, the, the definition of it it's because it said disavow, not take responsibility for it, I'm not legally responsible for anything I say up here so I thought well maybe that's going a little too far. So all I wanted, so it's not a disclaimer, but I thought it was. The disclaimer is, I'm not a preacher. I never was. I thought I was one time, a long time ago, and uh, so I, I took a little church out in uh, West Texas, and I sh- I should have learned my lesson there, but I didn't because my ego was far bigger than my knowledge, my ability to see myself, and I just thought I was doing so good down there. No, the church didn't grow. It didn't have any fantastic revivals under me. It was, uh, it was plodding along Sunday after Sunday and we were making it. But, uh, so looking back, I realized God called me for other things. As a matter of fact, what am I? I, I see myself as a salesman and now hopefully as a counselor. Um, and, and, uh, do I do a good job? I'm not sure. I enjoy what I do, and people respond uh, well with uh, wanting to change their lives. So I figure the main thing I'm giving them is is hope, and I sneak in scripture passages every now and then, and and talk about the positive things that God says about each one of us, how how we're really so much more than we realize. Um, which brings me to Luke chapter 15 go to Luke chapter 15 i know i should have i should have uh, stayed closer to where uh brad is with uh, uh his his lessons and teachings he wanted me to to uh touch on it or to sh- or say something that would be tied into it and maybe i will i don't know but if i do it's not intentional and so <laughs> so i figure you know if you preach any part of the bible you're kind of you're kind of shedding some light on other parts of the Bible. So I'm helping him out. I just don't know how. I don't. <laughs> so, um, Luke 15 is one of those places. We're all familiar with it. We're all, uh, there's, there's three stories there about things that were lost. And there's, there's a widow who had lost one coin out of ten. There's uh there's a, a father who had lost one son his younger son, and he had an elder son. It's We call it the prodigal son, uh, the story. Uh, the third one was sheep. If one sheep is lost, wouldn't you go get it? The uh, The story of Israel, you have to know just a touch about what's going on in Israel right now. Israel seems to have had the misfortune, uh, the bad luck, or the punishment from God, depending on how you want to interpret their their uh, history. Um, and it's probably all three. But uh, they had been conquered by, by large military powers from around. It was either Assyria or Rome. It was Babylon. It was Egypt. It just one after another. They were in a, it's not a particularly important strip of land, but it's on the way to where other countries wanted to go. It, it, it just made a nice little strip for traveling, which meant for armies as well. And so armies would come through, and one after another they would conquer Israel. Israel would be under their uh, power and their restraint for periods of time. And along about the time Jesus comes along, they're under the Roman power. Roman power is probably the most uh, high-tech uh, threat that they had ever had in their little country, uh, the Romans did things in a very automated, uh, high-tech sort of way that uh, they had proven successes, and they made sure that all the soldiers uh, did it according to their to their rules because it, it was it was a very successful way of doing things. If if what you wanted to do was conquer another country, okay. So they've been under one military power and then another. The religious. Leadership in the country then had developed a way of uh, helping the people actually isolate themselves. They, they, the religious group, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others, but uh, those groups had delineated just dozens and dozens and dozens of rules, and we'll follow these rules. Jews will follow these rules. This is how we will know who the Jews are. How do we know who the faithful Jews are? Well, we watch them. The religious establishment could watch what they do, how they did it. Even if it was a wedding festival, they could go and watch the wedding festival and they could tell if you were a good Jew or not. I mean, are you following all the rules? Are you, are you, are you doing what you're supposed to do as a good Jew? The religious leaders were really good at this. And the way they, if they couldn't tell right off hand, you know, if you were a pretty, pretty good Jew, but maybe, maybe they had some questions about certain things because uh, some things you, you do, you have to ask clarifying questions to get what the motivation is behind what you're doing, uh, because, you know, as well as I do, that everybody can do the same thing, but their motivation makes all the difference in the world. I can serve God all day long and, uh, go to church. I I can clean the church, vacuum, you know, clean, just put in lots and lots of time here. I can go out and uh, have some tracts printed up and make sure that on, let's see, Tuesday and Thursdays I go out and I distribute tracts to the people in the, in the city and, uh, you know, be sure that I have uh, our name on it and, and I'm doing it according to the Roman road. Because that's what I was taught when I was a kid. You know, learn the Roman road. So in other words, there was a way to do everything. And you look good doing it. Because you're always busy. I'm always busy in the church. I'm always busy out passing out tracks, out knocking on doors. But what was my motivation behind all of that? Was it because I needed to do that to please God? Some people do it just to please the church. Just to please somebody in the church. And some people have risen above that limited spirituality and they do it to please God. But they do it to try to earn favor from God. To, to try to buy God's love. Well you, that's hard to do. Do you know why it's hard to buy God's love with all your deeds and good deeds? Hmm? You know, we're we're it's almost like working uphill, isn't it? Because God's love has already been purchased for us, right? Through through just one, our Savior. But that God God's love has already been purchased. It is with us all the time, and this is one of the things that these these stories in in Luke fifteen brings out. Um, And you noticed. Well, let me notice. I'll see if I can go to the verse, actually. Part of, uh, not being a genuine preacher is following notes seems to take more attention than I can afford. But if I don't follow my notes, I will wish at the end I had. So I'm, I'm kind of back and forth and I'm saying, oh, gee. I don't see how he does it Sunday after Sunday. Let's not listen to music. Let's shut that off. Where's my Bible? There it is. Okay. In Luke chapter 15, we have three parables. It begins with the parable of the sheep. And let's read, if you will. I'm reading out of uh, New International Version. Not that it matters. Most of them are r- really close on these. And one good thing about these, these, uh, parables of, uh, these three parables that are linked together here by Luke is that we, most of us have heard them since we were kids. We know the parables. I'd heard the parable of, uh, of the prodigal son. I mean, so many times I, that I never actually, um, i had thought for years and years that the prodigal son i thought that was an old testament story it just sounds like an old testament story to me i mean the old testament is good at telling stories like that new testament tells stories in a very different way they're they're short and abbreviated and uh, because the greek language is so so much more able than the hebrew to to uh, uh express very nuanced uh, things, so, so they can say it in a lot less words, but that's why I love the Old Testament. It's, it's very wordy. It's like sitting down with an old guy who's got plenty of time and just wants to tell you a story, right? I mean, for example, you go to the New Testament and you say, Mr. New Testament, which by the way is a kid, right, compared to the Old Testament. And it's a, it's a kid and you ask, Mr. New Testament, what is, what is faith? And Mr. New Testament says, oh, it's the evidence of things not seen. Right? I mean, I, Blanche, tell me the whole verse. Okay, thank you. And, and so he gives you, Mr. New Testament gives you eleven words, and you think, oh, wow, boy, that's, it's compact, and I've gotta give that some thought, really. I mean, first, I've, you know, I've just gotta figure out exactly what that means for me. Uh, and then uh, down the road I bump into Mr. Old Testament and he's an old, old guy with long, long white hair, sitting on a rock just thumbing through the pages, you know. And, and you ask him, what is faith? And he says, ah, oh, faith, sit down here beside me. And he tells you twelve chapters, you know, twelve chapters about, who was it, uh, I can't remember, Abraham, is Abraham got twelve chapters, and told you twelve chapters about that. So, it's through storytelling. So here's some stories. Jesus grew up under a system of storytelling. And Jesus, uh, liked the form called parables. Parables, now keep in mind a parable, the word parable comes from a word that, it's the same word for parabolic. Okay? Now parabolic, we don't use that word much, so I mean, except when we're talking about satellite TV. Parabolic means all the signal or light that comes in this way is bounced in a particular direction so that it focuses at one point. Okay? So you take all the information, I could tell a parable about this congregation, as long as everything I see about this congregation can bounce off that parabolic shape and focus on one thing. Now, the other thing that means is you can't take a parable and use it for just anything you want to. You really need to let the person who tells the parable tell you what the point is and stay with the point. Don't try to use it for a bunch of other stuff or it won't work because that's not where it's supposed to focus on. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees, they're always around, aren't they? They're religious teachers. Remember I just said they're the rule givers. They have all the rules. They have all the ways of looking at you to decide if you're a good Christian or not. And so what if if I have all the rules and I know what you're supposed to be doing and everything, then what's your responsibility? Your responsibility is you better be doing them if you want to be counted as one of us. One of us Jews. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, right off the bat, there's two things that are are going on here. You'll notice that they're, the religious leaders are there. And he asked them a question that they would not be caught dead with sheep. Sheep were unclean. Sheep herders were unclean. You don't want to hang around with them. And so the first thing Jesus does is to affront their, their sensibilities, their sensitivities to, because I've discovered too, although I do it in such a way that makes enemies. But, well maybe he did too. But, uh, is, if you can affront somebody's sensibilities, they will listen to you. Because if you make them mad, even if it's just a little tinge, not a bunch, just a little bit, They'll really listen to what you have to say because they're already wanting something to argue about. So they're listening carefully and he says to them, if you had a sheep, well, they would think, a sheep? What kind of story is this going to be? I mean, how's this going to benefit me? I wouldn't be around sheep herders, my word. That would be like saying to any of y'all, I'm telling you a story and I want you to understand what I'm trying to say. So, so in the middle of it, just all of a sudden I say, well, You know what it's like to own a strip club and one of you ladies breaks her ankle, you know. And you'd think, no, I don't. (laughs) Of course I don't. What are you saying? But I'm listening. (laughs) Okay. Suppose, go ahead anyway, that one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, I'm not going to go into... Interpreting how it normally is interpreted and say, we've always been taught, this is what we've always heard. You know what you've heard, you know what you've always been taught on how to, how to see this verse. That's one thing that's interesting about, uh, choosing a Bible verse to preach on that, that everybody knows everything about. Because they already know how to feel the verse and how to approach the verse. So what I hope to do at the end of these, I hope that you see it before I ever have to Reveal it, but I hope you see the connection. I want you to look for the connection between that is common in all three of these. Okay? And why does he have to put the sheep up on his shoulders? Why would he have to do that? I mean, uh, it's a long way back into town, back, or back into where the other 99 sheep are, and he's got to trudge over probably rocks and, and, uh, rough, rugged terrain, which is quite a workout. Carrying uh, any size sheep, it's because sheep, and I think this is maybe one of our qualities as well why we're called sheep. Uh, a sheep, when it gets lost, it will wander and wander and wander until all of a sudden it realizes it's lost, and then it kind of freezes up. That's where it wants to stay. It doesn't try to walk out on its own. It just realizes it's lost, and it freezes up. Can't think of uh, good options on how to get out of this mess. Uh, doesn't recognize anywhere to go, so I'm not going anywhere. You know, I don't recognize any particular direction, so I'm staying right here. So typically they had to load them up on their shoulders and carry them out of the situation. The owner had to carry the sheep. Okay. The parable of the lost coin, it says, or, let's take this for example. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search and search and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. At least it ends exactly the same way, doesn't it? It ties it in to sinner's. So we know what these parables are talking about. I mean, uh, Jesus makes it perfectly clear, but just the way he ends it, I'm talking about coins, about coins, about coins, uh, and it's just that way with the sinner in heaven. Okay, so he, you, you, all the listeners say, "Oi, of course he's talking about us." All right, the parable of the lost son. Everybody knows about this one. So why is he going to read it then? Well, I don't know. Because there's time. There was a man who had sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. There's two statements stuck right end to end that the Jews, I bet they couldn't swallow it. I can't even believe, one, that the youngest son would come and say, I want my cut now. I want you to divide your estate. I want it now. And I'm leaving. Well, in the first place, people didn't do that. You don't do that. That's exactly the same as telling your father, Dad, I wish you were dead right now because I want my cut. I'm ready to get out of here. I don't like this. I don't like this kind of... You can stay there. Yeah. See? Jumped off again. I'll show it. So, so it's, it's, it's just like you don't walk up to your dad and say, well, really, I, I just wish you were already dead. Because I'm through. The second thing that is just unbelievable in this parable, and, and I know that, that everybody's sitting there listening because they were in the Jewish culture and they understood how this thing worked as well we should, the father never says a word. According to the parable, he just says, "And he divided it up." Well, that's unbelievable too. Typically, what you're going to get is a good uh, caning, right? Go out and get a switch and and beat him back to the barn, and uh, say, you know, you need to straighten up your attitude. But he didn't. He just he divided his his wealth, divided his property. And it says between them, so the young son's request affected the older son too. If he's going to divide up the wealth, he has to figure out how much is the older son's and has to divide it too. Okay, so he divided his property up between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all of his belongings, probably one donkey's worth, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. Uh, I think that's supposed to remind us that we're supposed to save up for hard times. Nothing said about it. It's just kind of plugged in there. But this is where we get a lot of our, our innate wisdom. We get it from old stories, typically out of Scripture. Uh the, These stories are picked up and passed on in families, whether they tell you that it came out of the Bible or not. Son, you need to save up for hard times. But, of course, they were thinking about uh, 1929 as well. Yeah, they'd been through hard times. And he had spent everything. uh There was, a, yeah, severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen in that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs not good for a Jewish young lad. he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. What does that tells you something about him too His hunger had overcome his religiosity. he knew what was unclean, what you don't do according to religious rules but you know there are certain basic things about being a human that will what do you say? Well, I hate to use the word. No, I will. That will trump that card. I just, I I just, it's my, I don't know. I know my mouth, it's, it almost locked up. I couldn't say it. And so, okay. So he's feeding the pigs, and he would have, he would have given anything to been able to eat what the pigs were eating. It didn't, it didn't matter to him anymore. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I know what I'll do. I'll head out and I'll, and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He went to his father in his mind, as a hired servant. He didn't go back as a son. Now, I'm sure he was hoping his sonship was going to cut him some favor there, but the whole point was he went back knowing he couldn't be accepted as a son now. I mean, uh, not really. And so he's going to go back and, and hope to plead his case as a servant. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still along the way, his father saw him. Still a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him and his son said to him father i have sinned against heaven and against you i am no longer worthy to be called your son and the father interrupts i don't want to hear your spiel i i know you i can see it in your face you're feeling bad i get it you know you made a big mistake it took quite a man really to come back and confront his father after doing that to him. But the father cut him off, and said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet. Bring the the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost, and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want you to I want you to bear down on that word that When the Father is speaking, He says, this son of mine. He acknowledges His sonship. Never occurs to Him, according to the parable, about He fits any other category like servant. He just says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, back behind the barn, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and, uh, and the dancing, and so he called one of the servants and says, What's up? And your brother has come. Oh, don't you know that was good news to him? Wonderful, wonderful. Ask him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me any young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we have had to celebrate and to be glad because the brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The three stories have some commonality in them and I, I hope you can see it. What does the coin itself do to be found? Oh, it does nothing. What does the coin do to be found? It just lays there. It just waits. Who finds it? The owner. The owner restores the coin back. Right? The owner finds the coin and restores it back to herself. She is restored. The sheep. What does the sheep do to be recovered? Nothing. It's the owner that goes out and it is you talk about taking a risk to have to leave 99 sheep somewhere. I'm assuming it doesn't say, and these would be questions actually that would be going through the crowd uh, while Jesus spoke here. Where did he leave the 99? Who was in charge of them? How did he know he could trust them? Why? They might rip him off and take all 99 and he'll end up with one sheep. You know, it took trust to do what he did. He had to trust whoever he left the sheep with. But that's not the point. The point is, the owner of the sheep owned the one. The owner of the sheep went out to find the one that got lost. And the owner of the sheep loaded that sheep up on his shoulders and brought him back and restored him to that flock. It's the owner that seems to be doing all the work here. What about the story of the son? Is it the same... Is it the same where the son does nothing? It appears that the son puts forth the effort. Why? Because he has no options. I mean, he's up against the wall. He's starving to death. He's ready to eat pig slop. Um, Things are not really going like he planned. Right? So so he's forced into trying to figure out how to survive. And he decides to come back to his father but how does he decide to come back to his father? Not as a son. He says, I'll come back as a servant. I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to be a son. I can't, I can't afford the embarrassment, the further embarrassment of, of walking in there and saying, uh, here I am. I want to be your son again. <laughs> Might not have had the same effect and certainly wouldn't have made as good of a parable. So he walks back in humility and says, I know, I know. You know, and his plan is to say, if I, if you'll just let me be a servant, I mean, that's not much to ask. But his dad cuts him off because, because his dad receives him back as a son, not a servant. He doesn't even give him a chance to say, if I could just Because in the father's heart, nothing has ever changed. He was my son. He is my son. And he reached out and redeemed him as a son. Because why? Because he belonged to him in the first place. That was his son. And I think it's even fair to say he belonged to him because back then I think almost everything was considered property to the owner. The wife, the children, the animals, everything was property. He does return home, but the father is the one that actually finds the son. He finds the son in that person. Now why is all this important? It's because we, we have a tendency to overlook the fact that in all, th- all three of these parables, and in the rest of Scripture, God owns everything. He owns us. He made us. He put us here. He gives us strength. He gives us wisdom, courage, insight, and you can just go on and on and on. I got to where, for a while, I prayed uh, uh, in my prayers. I kind of quit doing it. I'm not sure why, but in my prayers, I would I would thank God because He was the very breath of life I had, and I knew I knew. I mean, from scientific. Viewpoints. I took those breaths. My body. My brainstem told me to take a breath. You know, I mean, scientifically I knew that God really didn't have any play in that. But I don't know. I just, I think I came to a point of uh, brokenness and surrender to where I was thankful because I knew God supplied that breath of air I had. Uh, he supplied the, the blood that was flowing through my veins. There was no reason that blood has to flow, but it does. And it, and it helps me to be who I am and what I am. It helps me to just be alive. And what's the point in being alive in the first place? I go to, to nursing homes and I talk to people and they all have a common complaint. They're bored stiff. I don't have anything to do. I just, you know, and and I get tired of looking at four walls all the time and I'm getting old and I can't move and I can't get up and around And and woe is me, woe is me. And it's hard to break through that because it's all reality. That's why it's hard to break through. They have gotten themselves into a place where that's exactly what life feels like. And it's hard to get them to understand that God can be active in you when you can't do anything. I mean, can you, is it true that you've gotten to the point that you can't even pray for others? No, no, that's not really true, is it? You could, but they, but they have learned over a period of time, one ailment after another falling on us, and, and I'm experiencing it. I mean, one after another gets laid up on there, and I keep thinking, It's coming. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there and when I visit the people in the nursing home, I look around and I think, this is where I'm gonna be. You know, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna live my life once I get to this point? And my hope is that I remember I can always pray for others. I can always glorify God. I can always keep my sight looking up, not down. Keep my sight looking outward, not inward. Because I know that's where sickness dwells is when we begin to look inside. Isn't that weird? You would think it's called insight. It's called uh, self-reflection. We've got all kinds of nice words for it. But when we start doing it, we focus on ourselves and our problems. And uh, we forget about others and their problems. And when we focus on somebody else's problem, did you notice that for a moment you disappeared? You forget that you're there, you, you, you forget that your problem is so great. But I'm, but I've discovered in my life, the more I can stare at that problem, the bigger it gets. I found that out. There's a, a thing that creeps into every church, everything we do, it's not just churches, but it's, it's particularly, uh, harmful when it comes into a church. It's called transactionalism. Transactionalism is—I um, just heard the word. I've called it other things myself, but I like the word, so I'll use it. Transactionalism, and it—and it—and it says, "How can I buy God's love and favor? What is it I can do?" And I talked a little bit about it just a moment ago. What do I need to do to be a good Christian? And you know what? I've run into some people that wonder what they have to do to be, I guess so they can go to heaven. I don't want to say be saved, because they all will admit they've been saved, but they're still overly concerned about, well, it's an obligation. I need to get up and go to church. I need to, I need to tithe. I need to do this. I need to do that. Oh yeah. I need to pray and read my Bible. Because that's what God likes, God likes me to do that um and is that good? Is it good what's what's the motivation? I wrote down on here there's there's two things there's form and spirit. form is what you do. you're doing all that stuff. that's fine. I mean, as a matter of fact, I would highly recommend for every every believer, every child of God, I don't want to say Christian, I don't know why. It just child of God sounds closer, it sounds more intimate. And um, it should be right that everyone every child of God would have an earnest desire to do all those things to serve, to to do for God just because He did so much for me. Now if that's my motivation, that if that's the spirit of what I want to do, I'm doing it right. But transactionalism creeps in and and it really destroys the joy that most Christians can have. Because if we think we have to be at church to please God, if we think we have to be be good in order to get to heaven, I think that's a good way to say it. If I have to be good to get to heaven, then my salvation didn't count for anything. I don't think. Oh well, at least I'd be a good person, right? I'd be a good person, and everybody pat me on the back. And oh, you're so faithful; you come to church all the time. And and look, boy, she just she's always doing something for the church, or he. And there's, there's like I say, there's nothing wrong with that as long as the spirit of what you're doing is because of rejoicing and and being a pleasing odor unto God. You know, transactionalism has a way of, of pushing itself in and destroying because transactionalism is about me. Right? If I, if I do things so that I become a good person by my good deeds so that God will see that and take me to heaven, I'm barking up the wrong tree. It's all about me do you think i'm going to i could succeed i could some people do i think but in most cases don't we end up getting disappointed in ourselves at least that's one of the the main things i have against the uh, name it and claim it uh, theology that's out there yeah is because you know if you have enough faith and and you pray this certain thing god will do it for you and if it, and if god doesn't do this thing for you well, you just didn't have enough faith. It always comes back to you. It's it's a self-crushing, it's a self-defeating theology because what I have to say, what I have to say, I don't know about them, what I have to say is, is I will lay out my heart and I know for a fact God hears me. I don't have to prove it scientifically. It's nobody's business. You can say, well, how do you prove it? I don't have to prove it to you. It's none of your business. It's my business. I know that God hears me when I call out to Him. And I know that when I say, God, here's, here's what's on my heart. Now I don't say, I don't tell Him to fix it. Right? I've, I've learned to be very careful how I pour out my heart and I just say, this is, this is really heavy on my heart. This is really bothering me and, and Lord, I, and I've learned to say, Lord, I know you're already at work in it. I understand that. But I just want you to know how much I care, how much I love. And God responds. Metanoia is a word that Brad has used several times and he talks about it. It's uh, repentance. And the word metanoia means to change your thinking. So metanoia is something that we need to be doing it, it It's a process we need to be in all the time. It's one of those uh put on the mind of Christ, yeah put on the mind of Christ to change your thinking to the way that God would think. is it hard i had a I had a couple sitting in front of me one time they was they were in there for marital counseling, and they were of course you do the preliminaries you have to Listen to everything that's wrong, everything that's bad, and then get around to saying, but what can we do about this? Okay, and so we had gotten around to that point and, and, and had said to him, and I told him as a, as a source of encouragement I had hoped, I said, you know what, I've heard enough, I've heard what the problems are, I've heard, uh, what you're, that you still care for each other. I heard that too. And I said, you can change this when you get ready. If you want this marriage to work, it's your decision because you've got plenty to work with here. If you don't want it to work, it's your decision because you have plenty of bad things you can focus on and say, I, it's just not worth my trouble. I said, you know, but you, but I'm, what I'm telling you right now is you can turn this thing around, make a good marriage out of it and, and begin the healing process. And she said to me, yeah, but how long is that going to take? <laughs> a little skeptical attitude. And so, <laughs> so I said, uh, I said, I don't know. How long do you want it to take? I said, because if you want it to take months and months and months, that's how long it'll take. If you want it to happen this afternoon in a, in a, Span of about five to ten minutes. I said, you can make it happen that way too. And that's what most of us need to hear, I think, is that the, the magic in healing is the first step. The first step of saying, I have decided I am going to walk in the direction of healing. I have decided that I'm going to invest all my efforts and deeds and beliefs in healing. Instead of letting this stuff drag me down and just drag me down, drag me down, drag me down, and we do, and I think all of us have a touch of that I mean some of us got a bad touch of it, some of us got just eh, it just occurs to us every now and then about something in our past or something in our parents or something in this and something in, it's always external it's always it's always a moment of self pity it's always a moment of saying it's their fault, <laughs> you know. Well, I don't care if it's their fault. It's your life, right? I mean, okay, it's their fault, so get over it. <laughs> because like my parents, they're both dead. Do you think I'm going to change anything? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so. Well, not with them. Where where am I going to change it? I guess with me. I'm, a, I'm left. The key to it is at the end of the lost son when he came back, The key is the the two little sentences. You are always with me. You are always with me. Boy, that's a mouthful. That means at work, at church, in the privacy of home, when you're talking and saying things you wouldn't want anybody else to hear. You are always with me. And I need to remember that. And the second thing he said was, whatever I have is yours. Those are the promises that God shares with us out of these parables. And the parables teach that the father or the owner is always in pursuit of us. So our job is to trust and to rest in that. Let's close with a prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, because Your truths have a way of penetrating us, um, getting through the uh, walls and the and the other fortifications that we build around our lives to help keep us safe so that we can operate in this world. And we make the mistake, Lord, of blocking You out sometimes. Just help us to open up Drop all the fortifications, all the walls, all the protections around us uh, to to center ourselves in you and to be usable in every day, in every breath uh, by you. Thank you, holy Lord Jesus, that you are the very breath of life that I have today. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.